Bienvenidos a mi gente. This is MC again with a great episode. In this episode, I talk with a renowned doctor who specializes in addictions, specifically sex addiction. Or it can be known as an intimacy disorder. In the land of law enforcement, there are many unhealthy coping mechanisms that need to change. Sexual acting out can be one of them. This is a taboo subject in law enforcement, but needs to be addressed and talked about. Let's listen to this renowned expert on the neurological approach to what sex addiction is and how childhood trauma is a catalyst for this behavior. Let's listen to this amazing guest. Bienvenidos, a mi gente. This is MC coming again with a great episode. I have an incredible, incredible guest. His name is Dr. Michael Barda. He has 31 years of experience with treating addictions and 10 years specializing in only sex and pornography addictions. He founded Begin Again Institute, a treatment center in Boulder, Colorado that specializes in intensive treatment for sex and pornography addiction and those who have been devastated by the very personal uh, addictions. Dr. Barda is a PhD level licensed professional counselor and a certified sex addiction therapist. He's also learned and studied from Patrick Carnes, who is known to be founder and father in identifying and treating sex addiction. Lastly, Dr. Barda has written and published his book, TINSA, which stands for Traumatic Induced Sexual Addiction, a neurological approach to the treatment of sex addiction sold on Amazon and also at drmichaelbarda.com. Welcome, Dr. Michael Barda. How are you, sir? Thank you for coming on to Brownie and Blue podcast. I am, uh, I'm, I'm very honored to be here. Thank you for having me. Dr. Barda, can you say what sex addiction is not? What sex addiction is not is, um, you know, when you, when a lot of people come in, you know, they're thinking the sex addict is this guy in a trench coat. Um, <laughs> and they're, uh, you know, this, this guy who's out peeping in windows and stuff like that. And while those may or may not be sometimes behaviors, the, the core and what you said was the intimacy disorder. And the intimacy disorder is the inability to consistently bond with another person. And that happens, that's set up in our nervous systems at a very, very early age. But people, when it's set up in their nervous systems, I mean, they're not aware that it's set up. And then they go through life acting in a way where they're not able to be with other people um, in healthy ways. And I can explain that a little bit if you if you want me to right now or or if you have a question specifically on that. So, you know, when 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 I came up with the term trauma induced sex addiction. Now, um, what do you feel, my friend? What what was your what was your definition of trauma when you walked in? Something that was like a big thing um, in the sense of let's say physical prolonged physical abuse, or yes. even for me as a former first responder, law enforcement 20 years, on-duty incident that, in, that involved a shooting um, or you know, seeing a horrific either crime scene 
or you know going so those are the traumas that i or, or something devastating like uh like something that you know oklahoma city bombing if yes. you were, something like that yeah and that's perfect because that's what most people associate trauma with and certainly those are traumas right right however what we really look at is the trauma that occurs when a young person, a very young person, or a, let me just say a very young nervous system did not get what it needed to develop correctly, mm. right? Mm -hmm. so there's certain things that need to happen in early relationships for a nervous system to form in a healthy way. And one of the biggest things is called co-regulation. So that's when we have a mom, I'm going to just say mom, because I think that's primary, that, um, you know, can attune to the baby's needs. And attunement means the needs are being met without having to be asked. So the baby's crying, the mom finds out what's wrong, she comforts it, you know, she gives, she spends time with it, allowing her, her stronger nervous system to teach this young nervous system how to respond, all right? And what that's gonna produce is healthy self-regulation. If things like this aren't occurring and it's not because we have bad parents, so this isn't looking to blame someone for something. Right. It happens because there's so many different things. There's so many different variables. Mom may have not gotten that. So she doesn't know how to do it. There may be a ton of siblings around and she's too busy. Mom has to work. Mom has a drug addiction, alcohol. Mom's depressed. Mom's anxious. Dad's not available. Mom's single. So think about all these different ways that that young nervous system can be malformed without there having to be fault. It just is what it is, okay? And I hate that term, by the way, but anyway, <laughs> it is. It just comes down to this is what occurred. So we kind of say, you know, that this is about uncovering information. This isn't an indictment against anybody being bad, all right? Yep. Because we want to take that off the equation, out of the equation, because we want people to really focus on what their attachment wounds are. So we'll, we'll get into that attunement because okay. you use that uh, term and it's in your book. And when I read the book and I started reading attunement, immediately I did want to, in a sense, kind of blame my single mother and be yeah. like, oh my gosh, like, like now I know what the problem is. But you know, as I've gone through this, you know, that's not what it is, as you said, it's they, the primary caretaker could only do the best that they could do with what they had. Yes. And so to backtrack here, as far as addiction, you're, you're familiar with Kabor Mate. Oh yeah. So he's he, one of my, my mentors. He's an, he's an amazing, amazing um, yes. guy. And so he defines addiction differently than what I would say the uh, American kind of medicine defines it as. And he defines it as any behavior that a person finds relief and therefore craves in the short term, but suffers negative consequences in the long term 
and doesn't give up despite the negative consequences. And what he points to is, and, and you, you talk about this in your book, you don't, you pretty much define it the same way. It's just a different uh, definition, right? But mm -hmm. it's the exact same thing is that it's any behavior, right? So when people look at addiction, they only see a very myopic view of like substance abuse. Yeah. And, you know, when departments, police departments and even military, like there are certain things where they can only look at like, okay, you have PTSD because of an on-duty incident mm -hmm. or you have, you know, um, trauma that deals with specifically only something on duty, but yet they lose the whole value of the person based on what's happened in their past. And that's what you and Gabor Mate uh, really get into. And so what I wanted to ask you is, do you agree with that definition? And can you expound on that in the sense of sex addiction? Yeah, so um, that, that definition is 100% accurate, all right? <laughs> because what we're doing in our addiction, all right, is we're seeking relief. And Gabor also says, I don't ask why the addiction, I ask where's the pain. Mm. And so it's about what are, what are you trying to get relief from, right? And I heard a recent statement that I loved. I go, well, you know, I know you're concerned about your bandages, but I'm concerned about the bullet holes. Mm. And so, you know, everybody up until, you know, recently when this neurobiological approach has started to, to make waves, and I'm not the only one, um, that really we start looking at, well, what happened instead of what are you doing? <clears throat> because when I got sober in Alcoholics Anonymous 35 years ago, that's what we look at. What are you doing? How do you control what you're doing? You know, there wasn't any real internal healing. Um, the 12 steps gives a, gives a good thing, gives a good way to, to heal, but it doesn't heal the trauma, right? And so when Gabor's talking about that, he's talking about a, a, a very young person who was seeking relief and found ways to, to, to find relief, unconsciously. I mean, we stumble upon these things. Right? Very rarely do we go out and search for them. We stumble upon them. And our brain says, wait a minute, this feels good. I don't feel that crap I'm usually feeling. So what does any smart person do? They keep doing it. Right. They keep repeating it. And then it becomes compulsive. And that means it becomes a way to regulate themselves on a consistent basis. They keep returning to it over and over and over. But certain behaviors after um, a, you know, a period of time are gonna cause changes within the brain's reward circuitry where now the behavior is needed instead of wanted. And that's where we continue in spite of consequences. The craving is so large and the craving is for the high, yes, but the craving is to escape the pain. Mm -hmm. 
And the unfortunate part about addictions, no matter what they are, when we are involved in them, they by themselves create more pain. Mm. So we're just continually adding to our pain that we're trying to get rid of. Right. And that's what we keep doing. And then, and then there's consequences all over the place. And what does a person who's experiencing consequences do? They escape. They try to escape the consequence, right? Yep. So it's this, you know, it's this system that we've set up, these behaviors that we've set up to move through life as a way of self-protection. That was what they were originally for. What's that what's, now, now become, you know, the problem. Right. And what's, what's so interesting about your book and just even your take um, from your expertise and studying just the neurological aspect of trauma, um, you, you go into the book and you define uh, ADEs, which stands for Adverse Developmental Experiences. Yes. And just for those that, uh, that are listening, you know, can you describe what that is and give examples, if not personally, I can definitely give examples from my childhood on what those are as well. Yeah, so an adverse developmental experience is anything that's not, um, I'm, I'm trying, to, trying to think of the best way to put this. So an adverse developmental experience happens when the, the, the autonomic nervous system is expecting reciprocity. And when reciprocity doesn't happen, that form that makes the, the, the autonomic nervous system go to a defensive mode. Mm. Okay. So let's say the child's reaching out, reaching out, reaching out. And it either is met with the reaching out with abuse or it's, it's being, when it reaches out, it's met with neglect. Those are adverse developmental experiences, right? Because that need, that attachment need, that's 100% normal mm-hmm. is not being met, all right? So it's not just about you know the abuse or the neglect itself. It goes deeper to what was the missing attachment wound? And adverse developmental experiences are things that really cause us to have a belief system about ourselves that we're not worthy we're bad, we've done something wrong, I don't deserve love, and those things. So if you think of a very early child, you know, an infant, you know, up to about two years old, mom and dad are the universe. Mm -hmm. They don't know the difference between them and the parent. They're one. Right. So anything the parent's doing the kid's experiencing as himself doing it mm. or the world doing it. So when it's not getting its needs met or it's being slapped around when it's in a crib or anything like that, the only thing the child knows is I'm bad. I'm, I'm feeling pain. This must be because of me. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so that belief system then becomes the way we operate through life. 
That's the shame belief system that is already acquired. I, I say this because for me, um, you know, I was born in a different country. I was born in Central America and during wartime in that country in El Salvador. And then when I came, uh, I was actually given up by my birth mother at two years old. I don't remember it. I have no clue like what that is. And then I was put in an orphanage with probably a multitude, 40, 50 other kids um, and, and nurses, and, and not nurses, but uh, nuns, because it was a Catholic orphanage. They can't properly, as you put it, um, properly attune, give me the proper nurturing um, of whatever that regulation is to be able to, you know, in a sense, soothe properly and what you've already talked about. So that in itself for me hit home because it, it, even though I don't remember it, it caused a development of shame in the sense of abandonment. I'm not good enough. I'm right? not. Yeah. If yeah. I really mattered, there would be people taking care of me. Yeah. 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 And, yeah. So, and, and that's what, you know, was so awe striking to me is that um, your take on this has nothing to do with a medical. Um, disorder or brain disorder, which, you know, they describe that as like, you know, the American um, Society of Addiction and Medicine says a primary brain disorder that arises in the brain largely due to genetic reasons. And <laughs> just my story alone doesn't even coincide with that. But at the same time, it does coincide with what you're talking about, the proper attunement, the primary caretaker, and at the same time, when I came to this country, I was physically abused by my adopted father uh, for a number of years. And then I was sexually abused I'm at so some sorry. point. So it was like, it, it was a culmination of things. And then the sexual abuse was where it was so easy for me. And if you can describe how that kind of, like those abuses and stuff, how that really affects the neurological standpoint of frontal lobe versus mm -hmm. like, you know, the limbic or the back fight or flight system of the brain. Yeah. So, you know, when we have, when we're talking about the brain, we're talking about three different brains that developed over millions of years. So we go, and a lot of people are familiar with the term lizard brain, right? That's the mm -hmm. first brain. That's our regulatory systems that's you know those are the unconscious things that we do and then later on a system called the mammalian brain developed and that's when we had more movement and we could then you know keep ourselves safe by running away or fighting things off a lizard brain you just kind of do what lizards do they freeze and hope you don't see them okay mm -hmm. so they shut down and then later on, we had the, you know, the prefrontal cortex develop, and that's our frontal lobe. Well, within these three systems in the autonomic nervous system, there's three branches. There's a ventral vagal, which is a autonomic branch that is associated with the frontal lobe, and that's our presence. That's our consciousness. That's where we read safety or unsafe. Okay, mm -hmm. uh, I should say, or danger, all right? And then the other two brains are just responsive brains. So in early childhood development, if that ventral vagal or that frontal lobe 
isn't taken care of and a healthy what's called social engagement system develops, then what's going to happen is the other two brains are going to be constantly in charge of our lives. So we're going to always be living in fight or flight or freeze. And our ventral vagal, which acts as the braking system for the other two brains, it's, it's like a semi going down a hill without brakes. You keep pumping it, but nothing happens. Mm. Now, these are very unconscious. We don't realize that. We don't realize that this is, this is what I'm doing. And that's what I really developed Tinsa for was so that people could understand which autonomic state they were in. Because if you can understand that you're in fight or flight, instead of reacting out of fight or flight, you can use your frontal lobe to come back online. Now it takes practice, it doesn't happen overnight, but I can guarantee you it works because it works with me. Can you, since we're on that, can you describe certain tactics or techniques to be able to get out of that um, thought process where, so just to give an example for, for listeners, I know for me, I get into this thought process of, you know, the shaming and uh, I'm not good enough, or, you know, you do something and you beat yourself up so bad to the point where it's like, you're, you're just kind of in this like state of, yeah, like fight or flight, but you're fight or flight with yourself. And then, and then that technique to get up into the brain where you're talking about. So the biggest thing, my friend, and you got to remember this, and everybody needs to remember this, is awareness. Mm. So I was out with a friend the other night, and she was talking, we were talking about our childhood traumas, and she said something that triggered my childhood trauma. <laughs> um, you know, well, it brought up a memory, right? And I went dissociated. I went dissociation. I went to shame. Shame's dissociation. And what was triggered is my brain was saying, you're right. You're not good enough. You don't belong here. All those things. Well, I was lucky enough to know that I was dissociated. And I knew I was dissociated because I didn't feel like I was present. You know, it seemed like everything around me was numb. You know, I'm looking at this person, but I have this internal sense that I'm not there. All right. So when I was aware of that, I was able to say, this is a reaction to what's happening. This is not what's happening. Okay. And when I said that, I go, okay, how do I get back to my frontal lobe? Well, there's a number of ways to get back to the frontal lobe. And one of the best ones is counting. And I, were you ever told as a kid, count to 10 if you're angry? You know what? It's, it's <laughs> rare that I remember. My mom was just a different woman. I'd never remember any type of like regulatory, you know, regulatory yeah. ways to get myself back. <laughs> yeah, well, my mom never told me that, but I heard it other places. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. I've done it with my daughter, actually, yeah. but, you know. And it works because the, the, the subcortical brains, the mammalian, the fight or flight or the dorsal vagal or the lizard brain can't count. 
<laughs> the only brain that can count is the frontal lobe. So you're turning the frontal lobe by counting. You're activating it. You're starting its engine, right? When we're in our engine, when the engine started up, we start going, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm in a restaurant right now in Boulder, Colorado in 2021, and this happened in 1963, okay? Because that's the real bummer about trauma. It doesn't know time or space. Mm. So when it, one of those memories gets triggered, it's happening right now, all right? So we really do have to get back to the present moment. And there's that, there's holding ice cubes, which is really good because that shuts down um, the other two brains. You know, it starts bringing the frontal lobe back on. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't do high intensity cardio in the restaurant that would look kind of, <laughs> you know, but that's another way to get it back on. And, you know, these things where, you know, and, and one of the biggest ones is just using the five senses. What do I see right now? What do I feel right now? What's the temperature? I mean, I'm talking about outside, not inside, because if you start saying what you're going to feel inside, you're going to go down a rabbit hole. But if you say, what's the temperature right now? Are my feet on the floor? You know, you're grounding yourself. And then you say, what, what are three things I hear? What are two things I can smell? And what's one thing I can taste? So to get back in your frontal lobe, you use your five senses because that's what it's for. All right. And I'm there in the restaurant and I'm going, I'm safe right now, except for that dessert cart. Right. <laughs> that could cause some damage. But what this is all about, my friend, is returning to safety. Mm. Returning to a sense of safety. Because you and I had to anticipate crazy. Yes. And that's what our nervous system developed. There's bad news about that. You want to know the bad news? Tell us. Well, since that's what it's expecting, that's what's familiar. And oftentimes, when we're not experiencing that, we'll recreate it. Just to get back to the familiar feeling. So in a sense, you know, people talk about this all the time, like you attract like attraction. 100%. And, and so familiarity of being in this kind of fight or flight or reacting or whatever, you're going to attract those people that are pretty much in those things. And this kind of gets to my next question. One of the things that it was so interesting to me um, that I learned from you and your book and just even your, your intensive is that People can have trauma, but people that have trauma don't necessarily become addicts. But people that are addicts have trauma. Yes. And there's a, like, why? Because there, even, even I've heard other, you know, people ask, like, well, how can it be that you have trauma, but yet you don't become an addict? But yet it's the reverse on the other way. Can you explain that? Well, here, there's, there's a lot of different ways to regulate the nervous system. And if you've had trauma, you're not regulating in a healthy way. You may not have picked up substances or behaviors to regulate, 
but you're regulated, mm. right? And you're doing in a way that's not allowing people in, or you're not connecting with other people. You're not allowing yourself to fully go there, right? So we don't always have to become addicts if we have trauma, but what else can we do? We can become isolators. Mm. We can go into high risk professions. We can work out 60 times a day. You know, we can do all these different things that are regulating. But it's mostly about, you know, when I think about it, it, it comes down to the fact of these are the people that just don't connect. Even if it seems like they're connecting there's still parts of them that are not connecting. They're not living an authentic, from their authentic self. Mm. A lot of people too, you know, when I've run into people, there's a thing called resiliency of a nervous system. And that nervous system can be very strong and it can take a lot without breaking, right? So there are people who are very resilient, who've had, I'm not going to say extreme trauma, because if you have extreme trauma, you're going to show that you've had extreme trauma in one way or another. Right. But people who have had traumas and they're, they've been able to adapt in ways that still allow connection, but there's still something going on, Right. Mm -hmm. And I hope that explains it well enough. It's it does. It, it's kind of a, you know, it's a hard thing to kind of decipher. And it's not saying, and I know Gabor and I are, are not saying that if you had trauma, you're going to be an addict because not I'm not thinking everything's a nail and I'm a hammer. <laughs> right. All right. So I, I look at stuff like that, and certainly those things can occur. But I do know that people who are addicts suffered adverse developmental experience. I can say that with 100% certainty today. And, and that, that kind of goes into, so I had, a, um, I, I had a previous guest, he talked about his PTSD yes. and we talked offline and we shared similar histories as far as sexual abuse and abuse in the home and stuff like that. And he and I have this theory about law enforcement and first responders, but, you know, our expertise is within law enforcement. So you have treated, I'm sure, um, a lot of first responders or military personnel. Is that correct? Yes. So with that, though, like, you know, one of the theories that we have is like, if you delve deeper into these adverse developmental experiences, childhood stuff, the co-regulation or self-regulation that you're talking about that's all distorted, you know, and, and then you just even said it that, you know, people kind of get into these high risk jobs or positions. <laughs> and, you know, so would it be fair to say based on your experience and just even treating and treatment, um, you know, you see a whole lot of like, you just said 100%. People that are in those high risk in, in those high risk professions, they're more apt to have adverse developmental experiences or traumas from childhood. And I would I would tend to agree with your statement. Yes, 
that we're seeking something, right? And I had a professor one time that was amazing because he taught me that all behavior is purposeful. Mm. Whether we know it or not, we're doing it on a, for a reason. Mm. Most of us do our behaviors to meet unmet needs. Doesn't that suck? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's like, okay, I didn't get this med, met, need met when I'm one. So I'm going to live my life until I have it met. But it can't be met by anybody but me. No. I'm the only one that can attune with me now. That's it, it, man, that's so profound because even one of the things that really hit home for me was um, the, the whole, it, it, I was sitting in the room with um, one of the therapists and he was telling me to go back to a place where I was just happy. And I was like on a soccer field when I was like, you know, six or seven. And he was telling me to like line the field in my mind, like tell him out loud, like, what does the field look like? You know, where are the lines? Uh, you know, and then he went into like, what about the happiness that, you know, what, what is it that's making you happy? Can you smell the grass? And I could, right? Because that was my, as they say, my happy place. That's right. And he said, that's the place where you, in a sense, can kind of get yourself back to, um, kind of back online, what you were talking about earlier, and, you know, what hit home for me is that it was very, it was away from like my primary caretaker. It was away from all the other stuff that has happened. And it had nothing to do with any of that. And what was profound about it as well, too, is that, you know, it made me feel like I had to go and protect that little kid. And that's what they talked about in a lot of this um, even in therapy that I've been in, they talk about this inner child work. Yeah. And can you expound on that so people can understand what that is? Yeah. So, you know, when I'm thinking about inner child, right, I'm thinking about that little kid. Okay. He's laying in a crib. He needs help. He needs love, comfort, whatever. But instead of getting comfort, his mom comes in and starts slapping him. Okay. Hmm. So the kid at that time thinks he did something wrong. He makes up because he's one with this person who's slapping him. I'm bad. Mm -hmm. I deserve pain. Mm. If I ask for my needs to be met, I'm going to be met with pain. All right. So when we're talking about working with the child ego state, we're talking about going back to that child as an adult and getting to know him because mm -hmm. that little kid has to learn to trust you, mm. <laughs> adult, because the other adults in his life are slapping him around or ignoring him. Right. And we say to him, you know, hey, this shouldn't be happening to you. You're not doing anything wrong. I got you. At that point in time, we bring that kid to our safe place where he can be who he is. 
And that safe place can be anywhere you want. You know, I regularly bring my kids, my little, my little Michaels. Yeah, yeah. Into my backyard at my house now, mm. where they can play and have fun and be kids and yell and scream and not be told to shut up. <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, the worst this guy would do is roll his eyes and go, my God, what have I done? You know, <laughs> I wouldn't take it out on the kid. Yeah. And so what we're doing is we're providing the attunement that wasn't there. The kid's asking for something and we as adults are going back and giving the kid what he needed at the time. Mm -hmm. Because you know what's going to happen if we don't? It's going to keep searching outside of itself to get its needs met. That's yeah. Yes. You're a thousand percent correct. And when we can attune to ourselves, then we meet healthy people who are attuned to themselves. Mm-hmm. You said earlier, you know, likes attract likes. Yes, our traumas fit together very well with other people with trauma because we're constantly trying to resolve what happened. And so are they. So we're going to either meet our abuser or our neglector over and over. That's powerful. Yeah. And they're, you know, they're not doing it on purpose. It's familiar. Yeah. It's what we set up. Right. So we're just recreating this in an attempt to overcome it. But you can't overcome it with something that doesn't have the ability to overcome One of my biggest problems in early recovery was trying to get love out of people who couldn't give me love. They just didn't have it. (laughs) But I wouldn't (laughs) accept that. And it goes back to, I kept trying to get love out of my mom. She didn't have it. And my mind kept telling me, she has it. She just doesn't want to give it to me. She didn't have it. She had her own issue. She was a dry well. It wasn't like she was a well full of water saying, okay, I'm not going to give you any water. There was no water there. (laughs) (laughs) But you see a well when you're a kid and you're like, there's supposed to be water in there. (laughs) Maybe if I just behave in a certain way, I'll get a drink. Or maybe if I just do the right thing, I'll get a drink. And so this goes to the authenticity part that you talked about earlier, where in my mind. Yeah. So this is this is this is like, I mean, it's so profound because the authenticity piece, which I people talk about authenticity and people really don't know what that is. And when I started looking at this trauma in childhood and then what you do to cope with whatever it is that adverse mental, adverse childhood experiences with the primary caretaker, you don't feel safe with the primary caretaker. So therefore you end up developing this false sense of self and whatever that is, whether it's a workaholic as an adult, whether it was you know machismo, I'm gonna be a Navy SEAL or whatever the case is, you have this like, or, or for, you know, or a sex addict or a gambling uh, addict or an alcoholic, 
you know, you have these self-soothing behaviors, which turns into this inauthentic self, which is what you created in order to protect yourself from this unsafe environment. Is that, that something? So when we're not affirmed for who we are, 100% exactly as we are, we lose our authenticity. I got um, rewarded for being as my mom wanted me to be, mm. which any little kid's going to make up in his mind then who I really am isn't good, right? right. I need to be someone other than I am in order to get love. And this poor guy growing up is just like, I suck. <laughs> I don't fit in anywhere. And I don't know about you, but I'm the kind of addict, and I know a lot of addicts who are masters at reading the room. Oh, man. To know yeah. how to fit in. Right? I know exactly. When I was in high school, I hung out with the stoners. I hung out with the jocks and I hung out with the cowboys. We had cowboys in Boulder, Colorado back then. <laughs> and I could move from group to group fluidly when most of the times the cowboys and the jocks were beating up the stoners. <laughs> <You know> <laughs> but I knew how to adapt because I had to learn how to adapt. But this whole time, my poor little authentic guy never got anything he needed. You know, and that's another thing about going back and getting this little kid that we're accepting it exactly as it is. And what that transforms into is we're, we're starting to be able to accept ourselves exactly as we are now. Because we're okay. Yes. And that's, we, do, we do boneheaded things. So does everybody on the planet. <laughs> exactly. Between other people doing boneheaded things and us, it's a death sentence for us. Mm -hmm. I shouldn't have done that. I'm such a piece of crap. I'm just horrible. Instead of saying, dude, you're a bonehead sometimes. <laughs> you know, so it's this relief that, you know, when we're returning to our authentic selves, it's really learning about how to be me in the world mm -hmm. and not be terrified of rejection just because I'm me. Mm -hmm. Not having to change my behavior to have someone else like me. Because every time we're doing that, we're telling that little kid again, he's not good enough. Mm. Right? Okay. And that's where we lose boundaries. That's where we start doing things to get love um, and let people walk all over us. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and I mean, the need's bigger than the boundary. This is, so one of my missions is to bring 
forth certain attitudes towards not only sex addiction, but just addiction in itself. Because I think in the law enforcement community, they look at like PTSD and they look at other, like let's say just alcoholism. And, and that's what they look at as like something treatable and they have, um, I guess more flexibility in how they take that versus anything else. And so sex addiction in the law enforcement world is like a very taboo thing. It's also frequently characterized, right? It's also frequently characterized as like, that's just what men and women do. And, you know, if you come to somebody and say, I have this, they tell you pretty much like, that's not a real thing. So typically you're looked at as not having an addictive behavior or something that can be helped. Can you speculate like just based on when you've talked with, you know, your law enforcement people, why that, why that is? And have you ever dealt with leadership in that? I haven't dealt with leadership in this. Okay. Cause I'm not there, you know, I'm not tackling a societal problem. Yeah. I'm trying to help one dude at a time. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's my bandwidth. Okay. So I'm like, <laughs> um, but here's the deal. These people have to go back and start understanding. Stop looking at the behavior. Mm. Where's the pain? Why does this person need to drink? Why does this person need to go look at porn every night? I mean, the military is saturated with porn. Why? Because it's horrible there. <laughs> <laughs> You're in freaking war. You're going to die at any minute. Your nervous system's going, I need some relief from this. And it gives temporary relief, but it doesn't give real relief. Right? So it's going back to why is the person doing this rather than what is the person doing? Right. You know, what's causing this upheaval in the law enforcement community where these people have to live on edge all the time. I mean, my God, they're out protecting crazy people. <laughs> I mean, I'm serious. It's like, you know, you, there are people who put themselves in harm's way every day. Yeah. And what are they doing to cope with that in healthy ways? instead of stuffing it and let it build up. Right. Because we all like to stuff. Yeah. And especially people like me and you and, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, I've never been in law enforcement. I've always wanted to be a Navy SEAL. Um, those types of things, because it's like, I can make it through anything. Mm -hmm. Throw what you got at me, man. I, I'll take it. And that means I'm stuffing all the time. <laughs> but I'm trying to turn off what's really going on in me, you know, to be this solid front. Right. So unfortunately, you know, this work is about getting to the squishy stuff inside. And a lot of men don't want to go there. It's also very painful to go there. 
So it's no reason we avoid it like the plague. You know, I don't want to look at that stuff. But what's the payoff? Do I want to, yeah, do I want to stay this way or do I want freedom? And do I want to be walking around on this planet as the person who was meant to be here? Who was perfect when he was born? Mm-hmm. You know, those are my daily choices. And it's a, and it's a struggle. It's, you know. It's a complete struggle, but I think, um, you know, as we both know, struggle is what builds, like to be uncomfortable and to be in struggle, actually, it helps me to know how to be better, right? And, you know, if I do struggle on a daily basis, I go back to these techniques, your five, four, three, two, one, um, you know, and other techniques, just even meditation. Yes. What do you do? What do you do? I mean, you talked about um, a lot of the neurological aspects of, you know, what you've studied, what you provide treatment for. But as far as you, Dr. Barda, with your personal experience with addiction, what do you do to cope with your daily struggles, mentally, physically, all that? Well, I definitely stay as centered as I possibly can, okay? So I start my day meditating. Mm. And my meditation isn't the breath meditation it used to be, but now my meditation is just simply feeling what I'm feeling inside my body. And then practicing 15 minutes, accepting that. Mm. Not fighting it, not trying to change it. I'm a believer in God. So I invite God in as a divine healer Mm. during that 15 minutes because I don't think it's going to take anything away from me that I'm not going to let it take away. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm constantly telling it, I'm consenting for you to be here. You know, and that to me helps me align with what I think that will is right for me. And so I do that. And I do that numerous times during the day. All right. Mm-hmm. I try to do a lot of self-care. Right. I, I like to exercise. I love saunas. Um, you know, I do those types of things for myself to um to stay okay, to keep me out of fight, fight, flight, and freeze. Mm-hmm. I connect with a lot of people. I I love the twelve step community because that's my connection. I can go there and I can speak my truth, and I'm not going to be judged. You know, so friends connection, those types of things are very important for me. You know, travel's important for me. It's been hard this year with the COVID. I finally got vaccinated, so now I can go out and be wild. (laughs) (laughs) 
in a healthy way. <laughs> well, yeah, I can start getting out and going, oh my God, I can't be in this office anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, that is in a 100% healthy way. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. And wild for me today is sitting on the Oregon coast watching the waves or being in Cancun watching the waves. <laughs> you know, cause I love warm water. So it's just finding things that soothe my soul and in, in, in investing in them. I loved everything that you just talked about because I try to employ those things too. Um, I may not do it as consistently as I need to, but um, I, I still try. Yeah. And that guy that just said, I didn't do it well enough. He needs, he needs to be told he's doing fine. <laughs> he needs to go back to his inner child and say you're you're doing fine <laughs> you're doing you're not doing anything wrong exactly. yeah because i mean you are doing 100 percent more than 90 percent of the population mm -hmm. <laughs> if not more <laughs> so we're getting to uh the end of this uh podcast episode and I always ask my guests, I give them two or three minutes to pretty much give an overall message to the listeners. Mm -hmm. So what is your overall message? And just to give you, you know, most of my listeners are either former or current law enforcement, but I have some people that aren't even in law enforcement. Um, and what's the, so what's your overall message and what's the most important thing you would want somebody to take away from this podcast episode? Well, that you chose the law enforcement people chose a path of being hero, a hero, and you are, right? And you don't have to be a hero anymore. You get to be you. And I want the listener to start really thinking about their authentic self. Those times in childhood when they were incredibly happy like you on the soccer field, because that's what's called the frontal lobe functioning fully. Mm. That's what human beings are supposed to feel probably most of the time, that joy. All right. And so it's, where am I at total peace with myself? Not having to do anything you know, not having to be a certain way, but how do I get to be at peace with myself, right? And my method of doing this is by finding out what's causing me to not have peace, right? So that's the work is what's blocking me from peace? What's blocking me from God? What's blocking me from my innate right to be on this planet and to be a happy human being? Right? Right. So I hope that message hits somebody. I hope it does too. And I think it will. Um, I definitely appreciate your time. I'm again, honored that you uh, came on this podcast. Um, the people that do listen I know that they're gonna probably have some questions. So where can somebody reach out for help for, for if, if they find themselves in, in any type of 
either addiction or some type of crisis or whatever, and even law enforcement community, where can they find you if they want to talk with you? Well, you can't really find me to talk to me. Well, or um, your, or your, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but you can, you know, like if you come to the 14 day begin again Institute, if you're struggling with porn or, or sex addiction, or even just really intimacy disorder, can't have a successful relationship. We look at the trauma work, right? Integrative Life Center in Tennessee, they, they're a company that acquired Begin Again last year. And they acquired me and I let them acquire me because we have the same exact beliefs. Yeah. And we do the exact same work, but theirs is mental health, theirs is trauma, theirs is substance abuse, right? Mm -hmm. So, but whatever you do, you know, if, you, if you're seeking help, I'm, I'm going to tell everybody this, the fastest way to get help is to find someone who does a technique called brain spotting. Mm -hmm. And you go in and you start doing work on trauma because that will clear a lot of things up. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much again. Um, you too, man. This was yeah. this is so fun. I love this. <laughs> it was great. I could I could have honestly I could have gone into so many different things and I know you have only a short limited yeah, time. Yeah, the problem is, is I could talk about this for hours, so. <laughs> well, thank you again. Um, and you know what? Keep healing one person at a time because they Thank need you, my friend and you keep healing yourself. Thank you.